Hi, good morning. (laughs) I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come next, should come about. 
Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if, no one, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they continue with them, urged them to continue, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reveling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Lauren. Appreciate you doing that. It's, it's when it's such a long text, it's so nice to be able to listen to someone else's voice. Um, so I feel like I also just need to make a comment uh, about the, the worship team as well, because um, Leslie and Emily, when they're playing the piano, I don't know if you ever hear this. I rarely heard it, but I thought I heard it, so I confirmed it with my wife this morning. Like there's one key on that keyboard that infrequently will just play the wrong sound. So if you heard that this morning, that was not Leslie. That was technology getting the best of her. So thanks, Leslie, for just dealing with that. Okay, so we're currently preaching through the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, I'm going to largely forego a review of Acts today because there's a ton of ground to cover. Um, But just kind of maybe the overarching idea here is uh, Jesus' church is advancing. And so this is what the book of Acts is about. Jesus' church is being established, and then his church is establishing or uh, is advancing. Jesus is seeking to grab more people, pull them into his church, grow his church so that it will, his church will be built up so that more people will know Jesus, will find the hope that's found in him. And so that's where we enter into this story uh, today. Jesus' church is continuing to Advance. So what I want to do to begin and, and kind of provide a little structure for where we're going to be this morning is I want to begin by breaking down the structure of the verses that we're looking at today. So verses 13 and 14, they're providing context for us, both geographical and literary context. So first of all, we've got this going on here. So Uh, we find Paul and his companions going from Paphos. Let me see if I can do this, okay? 
and then they're going, which is in Pamphylia, or they're going to Perga, which is in Pamphylia, so we can see Perga there as well, and then they go to Antioch, which is up here. And so this is not the same Antioch that we read about uh, a week ago. This is a different Antioch. So um, they are on the move, and the culmination of this journey then is ending at the Jewish synagogue in Antioch. And, and in the midst of this then, there's also this reality that there's just kind of this throwaway comment that John departed. And this is actually a pretty significant thing that's happening, but we're going to come back to that in a later week. So after these introductory comments, the bulk of what we're reading today is a sermon that Paul is giving within the synagogue. So the service began with a reading from the law and the prophets. And so essentially what's going on is that People would gather in the synagogue, and then there would be this reading that would be, begin the service. And it would be from the Law and the Prophets. This is essentially an Old Testament reading. Okay? For us today, it would be a reading from the Old Testament. So they're just sitting down, and they're hearing a reading from the Old Testament. And then Paul's group was offered the opportunity to give some words of encouragement. And so Paul's not going to lose this opportunity. He's going to take advantage of it, and he's going to preach a sermon. So he begins by giving a brief history of Israel. So this is verses 16b through 25, if you're looking in your Bible. So, so this is, I'm not going to go through a lot of details here, but just to quickly summarize, this covers Israel time in Egypt. What Paul is doing is he's covering Israel's time in Egypt and then the way in which they're rescued from Egypt. And then from there, going to their wandering through the wilderness before they'll go into the promised land that God promised to give his people. And then to the to, to the time when God gives Israel judges. Judges were a group of individuals that were ruling and leading Israel up until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then there's the installation of Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And then leadership transferred to King David, who was ultimately part of the family line of Jesus. And this historical review then provides an introduction to Jesus, which is ultimately where Paul is trying to get. So this section then ended with a mention of John the Baptist. So what Paul is doing here is he's seeking to build some rapport with those in the synagogue, these Jewish people. He's trying to build bridges with them. He's trying to help the Jewish leaders and people see connectedness between the Old Testament these readings that they go to all the time, and Jesus, to see that this is all one story, that these are not disconnected realities. And then Paul gets to the meat of his sermon, and he's going to preach Jesus to them. He wants them to see how what started with Abraham, as God was forming his people, calling Israel into existence, is culminating in the salvation that Jesus is bringing 
the message of salvation that Jesus preached and that his church is continuing to preach in the first century with Paul is the good news that's been repeated for hundreds of years by the many prophets of God. This is just an extension of what they have been speaking. And so Paul is trying to drive this reality home. This is what led to Jesus, and this is now Jesus. This is the point. This is what we've all been waiting for. And then look at what Paul does here. He points out how everyone who lives in Jerusalem and all of the religious leaders are guilty. Okay, so he's calling everyone within that synagogue to account. This is not an easy word, okay? He's saying you are guilty. And what are they guilty of? They are guilty of not recognizing Jesus. But this isn't just an innocent case of mistaken identity. So they didn't recognize Jesus despite God's prophets speaking of the coming Messiah. This has been their message repeatedly throughout the years. So it says here, nor did they understand the utterances of the prophets. And then it goes on, which are read every Sabbath. Okay, so many prophets were saying similar things about this Messiah who was coming. This would be read over and over in the synagogue. And it's saying this happened every Sabbath. So at minimum, this is happening weekly. And these prophets warned as part of their writings that the Messiah would be wrongfully condemned, that they would crucify this Messiah despite there being no guilt in this Savior. And despite all of the warnings, Israel and its leaders carried out the execution of Jesus. They killed their Savior. And so I want us to see the emphasis that the book of Acts is making in telling this part of the story. The focus on Jesus' cross and his subsequent resurrection has been incessant throughout the book of Acts. Over and over, they keep coming back to this. Whether it's in a sermon that's being preached or it's some other way, the focus of the message has been repeatedly Jesus' death and his resurrection. Over and over and over. Jesus is the sinless Savior. He is the promised one. He is the one conquering sin and death and hell. And this is why masses of people are having their lives turned upside down in Paul's day. Because they're believing in this man. This is why people are being healed. Because of this one who has conquered evil. He was cursed, and then he cursed the curse. He died, and then he killed death itself. And so Paul is preaching this. It is all about Jesus. He was, pro- he was the promised one. He is the promised one. He will be the promised one. All of history has been pointing forward to him, and now we're seeing the culmination of this, the fulfillment of all of these promises. And then Paul goes on in his sermon to quote three different times Jesus being foretold in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read through each of these, but I just want you to feel like 
what he's doing in his sermon. So he's quoting these three separate Old Testament references, and these aren't the only Old Testament references, but these are being given pointing explicitly at Jesus. And so part of what Paul is doing then is he's helping his listeners understand this is how you read the Old Testament. And this is helpful for us today as well. We didn't, shouldn't read the Old Testament and never think of Jesus. We should, Jesus should be our lens as we're reading the Old Testament. How is this pointing forward to Jesus? How is this anticipating him? How is this promising Jesus? That is the correct way for us to read the Old Testament today. Paul then winds down this section. He's explicit that forgiveness of sins comes through belief in Jesus. And this is really important for everyone in the synagogue to hear. Forgiveness of sins comes through not a long list of to-dos. It comes through believing in Jesus. It's that simple. That is how forgiveness of sins is received. And then Paul makes an explicit contrast. Belief in Jesus can and will free people from everything that the law of Moses could not free people from. So the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, told people to not steal. But it didn't stop theft in Israel. They had to create other laws to address when thievery happened. The law of Moses said, don't murder. But people kept killing each other. The law of Moses said, don't worship other gods. But people kept trusting in all kinds of other stuff, other gods. So people were enslaved to sin. They couldn't fix themselves. They couldn't stop sinning. They couldn't obey God's good law. So God gave them a law, and that that law was good in and of itself. What wasn't good was the people who were unable to obey God's law. And so ultimately then, what the law of Moses, what the Ten Commandments brings, was not freedom, but it brought slavery and death and condemnation. But Paul is saying, that's not how Jesus is. Jesus frees people. So that sin for us today, that sin that you can't seem to shake, stop, or stop trying to shake it on your own. You can't overcome that sin in your own strength. The key to overcoming sin is to rest in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to let Him overcome it for you, to let Jesus conquer it. This is what Jesus does. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. Jesus is who we are looking for, whether we know it or not. As we walk through our days, Jesus is who we are looking for. And so Paul says in his sermon that by belief in Jesus, we are freed from everything. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't stand over. There's nothing that Jesus can't overcome. So the question then for us is, do we believe this? I mean, maybe it's like a nice Christian thing to say. Jesus conquers everything. 
But day in and day out, is this how we live? Do we actually believe Jesus conquers everything? Do we live this way? A concerning reality is we can come here week after week and we can hear this call to believe in Jesus, but we might be just like those Paul was preaching to. He was telling them how their fathers heard all of these promises about Jesus, this coming Messiah who would save their nation, and yet when he came, many people didn't see him for who he was. They didn't believe in him. In fact, they joined in on his crucifixion. The danger is for us today, we can say we believe in Jesus, but we're not actually believing in Jesus. Maybe it's a partial belief, or or maybe it's a convenient belief in Jesus. We will believe in Jesus when we want to, or when we need to, or when we can. But what Paul is saying is that partial belief or convenient belief in Jesus is actually a scoffing act that leads to our own perishing. Jesus wants all of us. He wants us to believe fully in him. (coughs) So what we do here at Center Church, I want us to regularly consider the implications of the fact that Jesus was a man who walked on this earth. This isn't like a Disney movie. Okay, this isn't fantasy. Jesus actually walked on this earth. He experienced all of the emotions that we experience. So every day when you feel the, or the, the emotions that you feel, Jesus has felt all those. Jesus died. Something a lot of us maybe are scared of or don't even want to think about because of what it means or what could be out there. But he didn't just die, he also became alive after he laid in a tomb for three days. So, so if Jesus actually died and he actually became alive, And that's who we're trusting in. That's who we're saying we're giving our lives to. It will radically alter how we think about absolutely everything in life. It will. Maybe not immediately, but over time, over the years, like it's going to continually, increasingly change how we think about everything. So so like conflict, right? How many of us are conflict avoiders, okay? It's classic Minnesotan, passive-aggressive, like conflict, nope, I'm running the other way, right? Okay? But, but rather than running the other way from conflict, like if Jesus has grabbed hold of us and he stands over everything, he stands over specific instances of conflict, we can view those as opportunities, Opportunities to love and serve other people, to be gentle in the midst of it, to reflect something about Jesus that many people maybe don't see or understand in Minnesota. Or when we think about death. Rather than being fearful of death, 
death brings improvement. It's, there's a lot of good things living in the Western world. But what we encounter here in the Western world is so pitiful. And, and I'm talking about the very best of what we experience here on this earth. is so pitiful to what heaven has to offer, to, to what living with Jesus forever will be like. So believing in Jesus can allow us to view death in a way where we can look forward to it, not, not in a weird way, but in a way that it's going to bring about vast improvement. Or maybe, maybe when we feel lonely, because I think all of us at times in life feel lonely. Like we're on an island, no one sees us, no one cares, no one really understands the depth of the pain that we feel. If we're believing in Jesus, we're believing in one who says he knows us intimately and he loves us perfectly. And, and these are not just trite sayings. He loves his church perfectly. And, and we, can't, we can't even look at each other to try and get, like, we can get glimpses of that as we look at each other. But the best of our love for one another is so small compared to his love for us. The, fa- the fact that he would specifically love us in the midst of our sins. He's crawling up on the cross for your specific life and sins. N- not just generally, all oh, these people who might be on earth 2,000 years later. But he knows you and cares deeply about you. Okay, so this sermon has historical contexts, but it also has this hefty amount of good news of Jesus in the middle of it, but then it ends with this warning. So the immediate response of the hearers is one of curious acceptance. People here and then they wanted to hear more. And so Paul and Barnabas came back. And so this tells us that a week later on the Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to listen to what Paul and Barnabas had to say. And ultimately, as we look at those who are listening to what they had to say, what we find is that there's two responses. And so the gospel is eliciting a response. And the two responses that are evident here is that some people are rejecting what Paul and Barnabas have to say, and other people are rejoicing in what they have to say. So there are many Jewish people who receive the message of grace that they're preaching. There are also many Jewish people and leaders who reject that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul and Barnabas inform the Jewish people they have been called because the Jewish people are rejecting them and their message, they're saying, we've been called by God to bring the hope of the gospel 
to Gentiles or to non-Jewish people. So they say, or, or this is God speaking to them, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So they're, they're hearing God's call to go to non-Jewish people to bring the light of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus to them. And this naturally leads to the rejoicing of Gentiles, at least those who are wanting to believe in Jesus. But the Jewish rejection of Jesus then leads to Paul and Barnabas being driven out of the city. But in the display of how good of news the gospel is, even rejection couldn't tame the joy of Jesus' followers. And so they're leaving the city rejected and rejoicing, which I think to our eyes and ears, that that doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're rejected, how can you be rejoicing? But this is the reality that they are experiencing. So the gospel compels a distinct response. And, and so some people are rejecting and some people are rejoicing. So what I want to do here in the next just couple of minutes is I want to try and clear the middle ground and, and give us something to consider here for us today. So I think it can be easy for us to look in our culture and see obvious examples of people mocking Jesus or hating Jesus or rejecting Jesus. And, and I'm not going to go to specific examples, but there's plenty of public examples of people who are proudly anti-Jesus. Okay? Now, what we can do is we could look at those people and we could just say, look at them. I'm not that. I'm not rejecting Jesus like those people are and, and try to justify ourselves. Okay? So I think many so-called Christians do this, okay? But maybe we also find ourselves walking in here feeling dutiful about Jesus. We're here because we're supposed to be here. It's the right thing to do, or it's the good thing to do. But if we asked anybody in our lives, none of them would say that we are rejoicing day in and day out about Jesus. And so maybe we could kind of talk ourselves into kind of this middle ground. Well, I'm not like those people who are blatantly rejecting Jesus. I'm not over there. Maybe those people are a little weird because they're actually rejoicing all the time. And are they actually really happy? I don't know. So I'm I'm just going to settle in here in the middle ground. The Bible speaks of faith in a number of different terms. It draws a number of different pictures. One of those pictures is speaking of faith in terms of hot and cold. Okay? And, and the idea that you can't be lukewarm. Okay? It's an either or. When Jesus saves people, what he does is he calls them out of sin. Okay? He calls them to Jesus and out of sin. So, so it's not like we as 
followers of Jesus are called to have one foot still in sin and one foot in Jesus. And and you can just kind of make your best life now out of those two things. That's not what Jesus saves us into. He calls us out of sin and towards Jesus. Out of a coldness towards him and into a heat. Okay, so... At the end of Paul's sermon, he quotes part of a verse from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. He says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So part of what Paul is saying here is there is a level of goodness in God that is beyond our comprehension. Even if we look at the things of God and we say, that is good, that is really good, that it's still far better than anything we can imagine. God does things that are hard for us to fathom. The goodness contained in the gospel is intended to cause us to smile and to just shake our heads. He loves us that much? There's no way. Really. I mean, humanly speaking, there's no way. But that's God's intent, that His goodness would blow us away. But Paul says in his sermon that his Jewish hearers are in danger. They're being told plainly about the profound work Jesus has done, and they are still disbelieving. And Paul then is equating disbelief to scoffing. Disbelief is rejecting Jesus. Now, please don't hear me saying that all Christians must walk around whistling and skipping and faking happiness because this says we must rejoice. Life is hard. We have doubts. We have questions that need to be worked through. But what this is saying is that even in the midst of those seasons, God intends for there to be a sense of his pervasive goodness that stimulates joy in any situation. Any situation. Psalm 32, 11. This says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the context of this psalm is of someone who is confessing sin, who's being made aware, I have sinned against God. I am not a good person. And there's this call in the midst of that humble, low place. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice in Him. Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So the word that always sticks out to me in this verse is always. 
It's like neon blinking. How can that be? God doesn't really mean that, right? But he does. Rejoice in the Lord always. How can that be? Well, the key is how the rejoicing happens. The rejoicing happens in Jesus, in the Lord. So it's not something that that we create or manufacture on our own, right? We can't keep that up. But the rejoicing happens because we're looking at Jesus and we're seeing Him for who He is. And that's how we can persist in rejoicing. Romans 12.12 says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So rejoicing in hope, even in the days of tribulation, when days are hard, when troubles persist, because we can look on the horizon and we can see there is a reason to be filled with hope. There is a reason for us to still experience joy because the horizon is filled with Jesus. But in order for this to be true, Jesus needs to be big in our lives. Jesus' voice must be louder than any other voice in our life. His truth must outweigh others. His grace must be widespread in our lives. We must see it and feel it and tell it and share it and rejoice in this good, undeserved gift of forgiveness. And this is one reason why the book of Hebrews instructs us to not neglect meeting together because there are many days that we don't see joy. There are many days that we don't feel joy and we need somebody else to tell us, to remind us, Jesus is better. Joy is still possible. There was a profound sense of Jesus in his followers in this passage There's no other way to defend how they are kicked out of town, threatened, how they are hated by their own countrymen, and yet still filled with joy, rejected and rejoicing. God promises to give His church His Spirit, and His Spirit produces joy. So, This is not something we create. This is not something we produce. This is not something we manufacture. We look at Jesus. We believe in Him. And He gives us joy as a gift. So the presence of joy, or the lack thereof, can act like a diagnostic as to what we are believing in. Joy that results from belief in Jesus isn't limited or limited to a location. It's not limited to a circumstance. It's not limited to a certain experience of any kind. 
Jesus promises to give us his spirit and to go with us wherever that might be, which means then joy is possible. Not weak, flighty joy, but sturdy, rooted joy. And this is why we want to end our sermons with gospel application each week. Because the key is not about what you need to do. The key is for you to believe what Jesus has done. Your joy is not dependent on you arranging the circumstances of your life in such a way that it's ideal for you. I mean, you might have joy really temporarily, but that joy is going to leave as quick as it came. Our joy is dependent on us fixing our eyes on Jesus, remembering who He is, seeing Him for what He's done, not for what we need to do. So, in closing, Jesus is raised from the dead. Okay, could I pick a more common, blasé statement to make than that? Just think about that statement for a moment. Jesus is raised from the dead. He came to this earth as the hoped-for one. He came and he walked amongst people who felt unloved and he loved them. He walked to sick people and he healed them. He, He was in so many ways different than anything that the world had ever encountered. And then his life was snuffed out. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. And he was cast off into a tomb. And all of these people who had pinned their hopes on this man were devastated, crushed. And then he rose from the dead. Jesus was dead. Completely. And then he was alive. That's fantastic. Unbelievable in many senses. Because Jesus is raised from the dead because he has conquered everything, because he stands over all things, I want to urge you to continue in the grace of God. So this is exactly what Paul and Barnabas encouraged people to do near the end of their sermon. They called them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So notice what happens at the end of this sermon. 
Notice how they're ending their sermon. They're not telling these new believers all of the things they need to do. They are saying, rest in God's blessing. Enjoy God's favor. Bask in God's freedom. Don't add to it. Don't seek to enhance it in any way. Receive what God is freely offering to you. And I would say the same thing for us today. But I want to qualify this in one way. So when you walk out of here today, my call is for you to rest in grace. But I don't want you to hear that as an American. An American hears that and kicks back because they think that grace means comfort. That's not what I'm saying. In one sense, grace is comforting. I don't want to gloss over that. But grace is an undeserved gift. An undeserved gift that is better than anything else. So anyone who receives this gift will want to share this gift with others. Grace is so good it will compel. It will move us. So I don't know what that means or looks like in your life, in the context around your life. But what I do know is that continuing in grace will not lead to self-centered living. It will lead to death of self. It will lead to generosity towards others. It will lead to sacrificing your preferences. Because this is what Jesus has done for us. But it's not doing these things because we're trying to measure up in any way. It's because these things are overwhelming us. As we're looking at Jesus, we're seeing him for who he is. We are receiving grace and then we're being compelled to share that good gift with others. So that's my hope for us today, that you would receive it through faith and you would be compelled to share it liberally with others.